Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Well, hey, everybody. Happy Easter. My name is Charlie. If we haven't met, I'm the senior pastor here, and today I'm much taller than you, and I'm digging it. I'm not gonna, normally I'm teaching from down there. Um, I love days like today when we wear our best Crocs to Sunday morning, you know? Uh, just to get something out of the way, it's been pointed out enough this morning. If you're in the room, you might not see it. If you're online, welcome. I've got two holes in my sweater, okay? I know it. I saw it this morning. I think it caught on my car, and that leads me to what we do at CBC every single week. If you're new with us, we come together on a Sunday morning, and before we dive into the scriptures, we start with this caveat, that the world around us builds itself up on the criticalness of our spirit and how we're critical to others. We are groomed in some way to find fault in all things around us, and I think a lot of that is to find pride in ourselves. It comes at the expense of others. But in this space... God has called us not to necessarily find what's wrong, but to find where he's moving. And so we come to this space acknowledging that we need a different attitude than one that's groomed from the culture around us, but one that's given to us by the grace of Christ that we celebrate this morning. And so we begin with this phrase that the move of the Spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. We set our hearts to ask the question, what is God saying to me this morning? And so we're going to start just by praying. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask that if you're comfortable, just say a silent prayer and ask that the Spirit of God might speak to your spirit this morning. I'm asking that you pray for me that, that I can tell the story of the resurrection in a way that, that maybe we haven't thought of before, that God does good things through his text this morning. So pray with me. God, I'm thankful to be here to celebrate Easter, to have the opportunity to declare this fundamental truth that the God we worship is worthy of worship because he's alive and the profound implications that has on those that call him Lord. Father, today I, I just pray that you make yourself known to us. Holy Spirit, speak to us today through your scriptures. If you're comfortable, just take a few seconds and say a prayer and ask that the Spirit of God might speak to your spirit this morning. Now, Sussy, pray for me that the Spirit might work through my work and show us a picture, a bigger, better picture of the beauty of God today. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Hey, we're in John 20 today, if you want to turn there. But let me ask you a question first. How many of you, you can raise your hand, how many of you here today believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Anybody? Right on. Yeah, that's all of us. Um, or you're just trying to impress somebody next to you. I'll take that too. God is good. All right? So here's what I want to do today. I, I think that today we have a, uh, an opportunity, not, not to get up here and me give you like seven, nine, ten reasons. It's, it's the Bible. Seven reasons why Jesus rose from the dead. 
Let me give you, let me prove it to you. You already believe it. What I want to do today is talk a little bit about the why behind the what. I want to talk about why it matters. I had a friend this week ask me, what's bigger, Easter or Christmas for the church? I said, work-wise, Easter is way more work for us. He said, but, but which one actually matters more? And I said, they matter both in the same weight but with different implications. Easter is one of the biggest holidays we celebrate. Around here we call it the Super Bowl for Christians. It's one of the biggest holidays we celebrate. But I wonder if it impacts our life every day or just today. Because here's what I know. That Jesus raising from the dead was supposed to change everything about how we know God and how we follow God and how we live out the ways of God in our life and world. I wonder if it actually does or if this is just a day that we show up to and say God is good and then tomorrow looks like Mondays. This day changed everything and I want to talk about why a little bit. And fundamentally, I'm going to start from this position, that I think the most life change for you and for me doesn't happen because you know something. It happens because you feel something. If you want to change a life in an everyday application, shoot for the heart, not the head. I can prove it to you in a couple different ways. One, let's talk about Texas. You can't go wrong in Texas talking about Texas. We're prideful, but it's not sinful, right? So in 1985, Texas had a littering problem, big time. And they passed a bunch of laws, and they said, please don't litter on the roadways and the highways. They spent on average $20 million a year. That's 1985 money, so that's like, I don't know, $9 trillion today. They spent $20 million a year cleaning up litter along highways and roads, and that was rising at 17% a year. And they tried to fix the problem. They made it illegal. They talked about how you don't want things to be dirty. They talked about how trash is bad. They put signs everywhere saying there's going to be a fine and a fee, and that didn't change anything. You know what did? They contacted an ad firm, and they came up with a slogan. You know what that slogan is? Don't mess with Texas. The next year, they saw a 70% decline in littering. True story. They found that the, the people that littered were often men between 18 and 25. And if they could tap into that felt need, like this is our space, not just you know it's wrong, but you feel like it's violating you. If you want change, shoot for the heart, not the head. Because we can know something and not have it affect who we are, who are becoming what we want to do. That phrase actually, don't mess with Texas, today that anti-litter slogan sits on um, the plaque, a plaque on Madison Avenue Walk of Fame in the Advertising Hall of Fame. It's still what we quote today. If you want to change something for the everyday, shoot for the heart, not the head. I know that's true in my personal life. I remember before we had our first kid, my wife and I wanted kids, but we had a different idea of the timing of those kids. And we had that first conversation, and I said, what about now? And she's like, no. And I said, okay, what do I do next? And so I did what every good husband should do. I brought out a pie graph and a chart, and I said, well, if we have kids here, the age you'll be when they grow up. No, I didn't do that, right? Don't ever do that, because I wanted my kids to come with my first wife, not my second wife. Um, <laughs> kidding, kidding. What changed is our friends started having babies. My wife held a couple, and she's like, let's have some kids, right? If you want to change, shoot for the heart, not the head. So what I'm going to do today in John chapter 20 is I want to talk through this emotional story of this one woman, Mary. It's my favorite narrative of the resurrection, because I think what we see is the beauty of someone who follows Jesus, who felt like all was lost, and who finds hope again because Jesus rises again. So join me in John chapter 20. It starts like this. Now very early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been moved away from the entrance. 
Here's something we have to start with. One, uh, who is Mary Magdalene? If you're a church-going folk, you might know, you might not. Roughly, at that point in the history of the world, in the first century world, Mary was a very common name. It's estimated that 25% of the girls were named Mary then. It's like Emma today. It's just everywhere. And, and, and so Mary Magdalene is mentioned in scriptures with a couple other Marys. So let's get our, 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 our facts right before we begin. She's mentioned in Luke 8 and a couple other places. And here's what we know about her. She is from a region of Magdala that's off the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And, and sometimes when we think about her, uh, people think that she was kind of a, um, uh, an illicit person morally and sexually, and that's not necessarily true about Mary Magdalene. That was true about the city she came from, but we don't see that about her. What we do know is that Jesus delivered her from seven demons. What we do know is that Jesus let her follow him. What we do know is that it says in Luke chapter 8 that after that moment that she was delivered, that she gave her own finances to support Jesus' ministry going forward. What we do know is that there's this woman that was constantly bothered by demons. Jesus showed up, Jesus delivered, Jesus saved, and then she ran with Jesus for the rest of his life. And she was there for the crucifixion, for the beatings, for the trials, for the empty tomb. She was one of the first people at the empty tomb. What we do know about Mary Magdalene is that the reason she was sad, the reason she followed Jesus wasn't just because she got healed. She believed in what Jesus told her about what could be. When, when you think about it, in the first century world, women didn't have a whole lot of weight or respect. In the Roman society, for sure, but even in the Jewish society, there's a, a phrase, a rabbinic phrase they used to say in the first century. Jewish men would walk around and say, God, thank you for not making me a slave, a Gentile, or a woman because they didn't have a whole lot of respect. Jesus comes on the scene and looks at them and sits with them and talks to them and saves them and says, follow me and lets them sit at his feet and be learners, which was forbidden by the law. Jesus radically transformed how his disciples saw women, the respect they should give them. He radically transformed what they thought they, they, they could become. You got to know that. So when Mary follows Jesus, it's more than simply she followed something that was great. She grieved because Jesus was someone who saw her not just for who she was, but for who she could be. That's very, very powerful. I got a graduation invitation in the mail this week. I'm sitting at my kitchen island, and I think I exclaimed something like, oh no. And my wife said, what's wrong? And I said, I looked at this invitation, and this girl had this, you know, class of 2022 and it's the first time I realized that I graduated in 2002. It was just too close. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And then all this chatter has been happening about our 20-year class reunion, which I am absolutely out on all the way. And I have some friends that ask me, Charlie, why don't you want to go? Because I don't want to be defined by the Charlie I was 20 years ago. I was not. I am not the same person. It is enslaving being defined by other people's expectations of what you are because of what you are in the moment hope of the gospel that Mary found that we have is that God sees us through the righteousness and the goodness and the beauty of Jesus by what you are becoming, not by what you are. Mary knew that. And so Mary goes there early in the morning because this was the man that promised her all the things that could be, not what was. You skip down to verse 10. She goes and tells the disciples, and then she comes back. It says, so the disciples went back after they visited to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. As she wept, she bent down and looked in the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and one at the feet. 
They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And Mary replied, They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. She's still buying into this idea that he is her Lord. And, and that word Lord there, especially in this society, really means they set the tone for my future. They are what I submit to. They're what I buy into. They are the lens through which I look at the world. And they said, my, my Lord is gone. Sometimes we don't talk about Saturday in the Holy Week enough. Friday is good and we celebrate and we talk about all the things that happened going up to it. But Saturday, just sitting in silence, the hardest day. I bet they thought that Jesus wasn't going to die and then he did. I bet they thought that he wasn't really dead, but then they rolled the, tomb, the, the rock over the tomb. I bet they thought something would happen and then nothing did for a day and a half. Sat there in silence. You've been there. I don't have to insert a story here. You know how hard it is to sit in silence and wait on the promises of God. And as we do that, we slowly start to believe that the promises of God aren't true for me anymore. It's such a hard place to be. And so she's sitting there weeping because it wasn't just that somebody killed her friend. It was that somebody killed all these promises that they told her from when she first met Jesus, when he first delivered her. And here's the thing about promises. I think there's a, a difference between lies and promises. Lies can come and go, but promises carry a bigger weight than lies do because when the one who makes the promises die, the possibility of those promises die with them. There's a hope that comes with promises that we don't have with simple lies. And when Jesus died, the hope that he gave to all the people around him died with him, and that is powerful. This morning, I promised my daughter two things. One, last night we were talking and she said, Dad, am I going to see you in the morning? I said, no, it's a Sunday. You'll see me at church. And she said, Dad, I'm going to get up early, and I'm going to be able to give you a hug and a kiss before you leave. And I thought, please don't do that for your mom. Um, and, and then I promised her that we would have an outside church service. And <laughs> so this morning I, I leave, and she's not up yet. I didn't think she would be. She has this, this light that turns a certain color when she gets up, and um, and it's been a really long weekend. We have some family in town. She's just been running since Thursday morning. And, and so there's no way she was going to get up early. But she is a stubborn, stubborn child like her mom. And so we, <laughs> I'm going to have to pay for the sermon in a lot of ways after today. Um, so I thought there's no way. I left about 6.15, 6.20 this morning to get up here and make the call and inside or outside. I am in my car about five minutes from my house. I live in Highland Village. And all of a sudden, my wife FaceTimes me. And I knew at that point, oh, no. And uh, they were laying in bed, and, and it was my daughter. And she said, Dad, I woke up early for you. <laughs> and she did. And she said, you didn't give me a hug and a kiss. So guess what I did? I kept driving to work. <laughs> I said, can I kiss the phone? Like, I'm not Dad of the Year yet. I'm becoming something. Okay, everybody? But she willed herself to wake up just to give me a hug and a kiss, and I couldn't do it for her, and she woke up about five minutes too late, so it's a lesson for her. Um, <laughs> there are consequences. But you can tell that she was disappointed, because when you promise something to somebody, when you break that promise, when that promise dies, the hope that, has, that was with it goes away. I love what John Steinbeck says in his uh, novel, The Winner of Our Discontent. He said, it's so much darker when a light goes out than it would have been if it had never shown. We live in a culture of broken promises. It happens each and every day, all the time. We know it to be true. There's actually a PR firm, one of the largest in the world, called Edelman, and they, every year, do a consumer trust poll. 
And they do it with 33,000 people over 28 countries. And America has now become the least trusting informed public of the 28 countries that the firm surveyed right below South Africa. Because we live in a society of broken promises. We don't trust each other anymore. Pew Research found that it wasn't, trust wasn't just declining in our authorities, but interpersonal life. It says that levels of personal trust tend to be linked with people's broader views on institutions and civic life. 75% polled said they believe trust is failing amongst institutional authorities. And 64% said they believe trust is falling interpersonally. Faith in our fellow man. We break promises all the time. To one another, our authorities do, you break it to yourself. Roughly 70% of New Year's resolutions don't make it past January. We live in a society of broken promises. I think this is what Mary's experiencing, the crushed hope that comes from a promise not delivered upon. She goes on to say in verse 15, when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. He said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Because she thought he was the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I will take him. This is one of my favorite lines, because I've done a lot of bad things, but I've never mistook God for gardeners, you know? Um, and I love, I think, why, it's a little tangent, but I love, I think, why John puts this there. The way John writes his gospel is very 30,000 foot. Some of the other ones are more linear. They take you, walk you through what Jesus did. But John has all these kind of ethereal themes that run through, uh, like, like shepherds and water and light. And so why he chooses gardener there, I think, is really important. There's a principle, as we interpret scripture, called the principle of the first mention. It's one of my favorites. What that means is that if you hear a word, you're automatically going to go back to the first time you heard that word. So I remember, I'm I'm a big, I love food, and my favorite food in the world is fresh pasta and some kind of like ragu, right? I remember the first time I had fresh pasta and a wild boar ragu at a restaurant in the South Loop of Chicago. Blew my mind. Every time I have pasta now after that, every time I have any kind of ragu or a pappardelle, I always think about that one restaurant. Every time. So I think what the writer does here, John does it in his gospel when he talks about the baptism. He says, hey, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The first time we see that mentioned in Scripture is Genesis 22, when God says to Abraham, take your son, the one whom with your well-pleased, up this mountain and sacrifice him. It was a foreshadowing of Jesus. So when John says in our passage, you thought he was the gardener, I think any Jewish kid that had memorized the Old Testament, which is all Jewish kids, would have thought the first time we saw gardener was when Jesus and God were in the garden and all the promises that came with, with, with humanity in the first place. All the promises that came with what God wanted us to be all the promises that came with us living with God in the right way every single day, all those promises are here again because Jesus is alive. And so she says, tell me where you put him and I'll take the body from you. But Jesus responded to her, Mary. She turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. It's this beautiful moment. I would argue this is probably one of the most intimate moments in the entire New Testament. The power of a name is massive power of a name signifies intimacy. That's what happened in the garden when God said to Adam, name the things, because they're going to be yours to, to hopefully allow to flourish. That's what we do with our kids. That's, I have a friend of mine who has two daughters, and recently his daughter started calling him his first name. And, and my favorite line is he looked at his daughter and he said, hey, look, everybody can call me Stephen, but only you can call me dad, you know? And I love that. 
intimacy and power in a name. Jesus looks at Mary, and in a moment, he breaks down all of the broken promises that she thought were given to her through Christ. In a moment, she absolutely found that Jesus was all that he promised and that he'd hoped for. And so this is how she responds. Jesus replied, Don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Go to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And So this is a weird verse a little bit. You have this God who comes, appears to Mary, and then he's like, please don't touch me, you know? And, and I think what the writer's conveying here is clearly what's implied is that Mary clung to Jesus like a little kid that hadn't seen her dad, you know? We had a Good Friday service here. It was outstandingly cool. Um, we do it every year, and this was by far my favorite. And we had 10 stations that you walk through throughout the building, and I was at the last station right over here. And my daughter went through the stations. And when the doors opened over here, she just started sprinting to me. And she leapt into my arms, and she says, Dad, every room had a video clip that I narrated. And she said, Dad, how are you in all the rooms at the same time? <laughs> and I said, hey, kid, I'm always able to see everything you do. And she said, we've been looking for you in all these rooms, and we finally found you. And she would not let me go. This is what Mary does. The hope built up in a broken promise, not actually broken anymore. One writer says, it's in this moment, it's in this moment. Um, there never was uh, one word utterance more ch charged with emotion than this one. You know why? Because most life change happens when we feel something, not know something. She saw Jesus and was like, yeah, okay, so there he is, but didn't recognize it. She heard that Jesus was there for her and still loved her, and it changed everything just like that. It's a beautiful depiction of what it does when we realize what the resurrection actually does for us. One theologian said, Thomas needed to touch, Jesus's, uh, to touch Jesus to strengthen his faith. Mary needed to release him because she did not need to fear losing him again. And this is why we talk about promises today. What do we need to know about the resurrection? Not just know that he's alive. What do we need to know? We need to know that in a world of broken promises, the resurrection makes the promises of Jesus possible for you and me. Because oftentimes when we are lied to so much, when we lose trust in so many things so quickly, we start to believe that God is not different than all the things around us that are lying to us. One of my favorite Instagram follows is Christians who curse sometimes, because I should be the picture on their Instagram account. But it's an Instagram account all about how people are disappointed with the church. It's from a pastor somewhere. He hasn't said where. And his whole point there is to heal broken people and remind them that God's promises aren't broken to them anymore. Because Jesus walked around for years and he made promises to people. God interacted with his people and he made promises to people. God promised salvation to all who believe. God promised that all things will work out for good of those who love him. God promised that we have new life in Christ. He promised every spiritual blessing on us. He promised that he'll finish the work he started in each and every one of us. He promised peace when he pray. He promises to supply our needs. Jesus promises rest. Jesus promises abundant life. Jesus promised eternal life. Jesus promised power to his disciples after he left. Jesus promised that he'll return for us. The problem in a culture of broken promises is we start to forget that the promises of Jesus through the resurrection are still possible for us because he's alive. It's a beautiful truth of the God that we follow, the God that we serve, and that changes everything because the promises of Jesus aren't just possible one day, but today. That's why Easter is a big deal because in a world that loses hope, we start to know and understand that because Jesus is alive, his promises are still possible for you and me.
that flies against the grain of everything I experience outside of this place. I need to know it. And that kind of heart change, man, that'll get you. That'll change your Monday, right? That all the things God promises about flourishing and goodness and patience and peace and loving kindness and relationships and marriages and kids are still possible for us because he is alive. That's why the resurrection is a big deal. In a world of broken promises, the resurrection makes possible the promises of Jesus for you and me. And this is how the story ends. Mary Magdalene found her disciples and told them, I've seen the Lord. And so basically he says, I'm here. Don't hold on to me. You got a job to do. Go and tell everybody else the same thing that you know. That because I'm alive, the promises they thought were broken to them aren't broken anymore. It's funny when you look at how following Jesus affects people. And I think one thing that stood out to me in the last couple years of chock-full broken promisesness is that people that call Jesus Lord and follow him usually, usually are better for it. We've quoted this a bunch of times in the last couple weeks in our last series, but the Washington Post actually had a poll that was put out this year, and it said that, that shockingly, regular churchgoers were the only segment of the populations whose mental health improved from a pandemic wreck 2020. Uh, Gallup puts out a satisfaction poll, a life satisfaction poll every year. And it says there's three demographics that usually are more satisfied with life. And it's education level, it's annual household income, and religious service attendance. And it said that the highest level percentage of people that are highly satisfied with their life are those who attend religious services weekly. That's at 67%. Look, this is not me saying you need to come to Crossroads every week. The doors are open for you. This, this is me saying that what we do in this place, in a world of broken promises, each and every week, not just this week, is remind ourselves that God's different than that. And we're better for it. What we do in this place is remind ourselves that the promises of God are still possible for you and me because he's alive. It started with today when he rose from the dead. So what do we do from here? We continually tell others about that message in a world of brokenness. We're Mary's. We cling to Jesus, and then we go out in the world, and we say, guys, do you know that not everything lies to you? You know how good God is? Because he's alive, have you seen his beauty? And we need that reminder each and every week. So this is the beginning of a sermon series over the next five weeks. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how we become people that live into the promises of God, not the promises of the culture around us. And so we're going to break down a couple lies the culture has for us. Next week we're going to talk about how you are not defined by and your happiness is not found in what you have. Or in a couple weeks, what you do. Or in a couple weeks, the best thing you've done. Or what people think of you. Or even the worst thing you've done. God has a different definition of your life. And it starts today with a God who says that you can find hope and happiness because he is alive. It starts today when we find out that we are people defined by the resurrection. Because through it, the promises of Jesus are made possible for you and me. And that's worth celebrating. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that I can have full confidence in all the promises you made to me, in all the promises you made to me because you rose from the dead. I am celebrating the fact that you are a God who's faithful and who's trustworthy in a society that breaks down trust. Might we be a people that proclaim that message to a world that that really needs it more than just about anything else? Might today be a day that we celebrate a God who's good to us, who's faithful, and who keeps his promises. 
that we aren't defined by death, we are alive. Because that's what Jesus is too. We pray these things in his name. Amen.